Hello, and welcome to another HeartPod, cardiology podcast for trainees. My name's Dr. Dominic Pimenta, and today we will be joined by Dr. George Abraham, who will be talking to us about the new guidelines for N-STEMI. Welcome back to the Cardiology Registrar podcast. This is part two of the NSTEMI guidelines from the ESC. My name is Dr. George Abraham, I'm one of the cardiology registrars at the Royal Free Hospital. So last time we uh, had an introduction to NSTEMI and to ACS and to how we might risk stratify patients. Today we're going to talk about some of the pharmacological management of these patients with ACS. So first of all, um, let's talk about the specific aspects of management that are mentioned in the ESC guidelines. First of all, oxygen. Now this um, has changed in recent updates and recent guidelines. So the recommendation is to only administer oxygen if the oxygen saturations are less than 90% on the pulse oximetry or there is evidence of significant respiratory distress. What other pharmacological management can we give when patients are complaining of significant chest pain? IV nitrates are recommended, um, this is considered better than oral treatment. It's generally only okay for symptoms and one of the cautions is if the patient has taken recent phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Other medications mentioned in the ESC guidelines are beta blockers and most of the evidence that we have for beta blockers um, are based on early registry data. We know that beta blockers can reduce in-hospital mortality for patients with ACS. However, we should be very cautious because there is a subgroup of patients who are at higher risk of developing cardiogenic shock. So very sick patients who are elderly, have a heart rate presentation of over 110 or a low systolic blood pressure. We should avoid using beta blockers in the acute setting. And beta blockers, there is a mandate for using them after 24 hours after we've assessed their LV function and when we've got them out of pulmonary edema or cardiogenic shock. Now let's talk about antiplatelets now. So aspirin is the one that has the um, most experience uh, with its use. The pharmacological target, I'm sure we're all aware that this is a irreversible activator of the COX enzyme. COX is a platelet prostaglandin endoperoxide synthase 1 and this is abbreviated to COX-1. The overall effect of aspirin on this pathway is to suppress thromboxane A2 and as we know this inhibits uh, platelet clumping. Aspirin has consistently been shown to reduce mortality in ACS and to reduce the frequency of recurrent MI. In addition to aspirin we always add a second antiplatelet and historically this was clopidogrel. Now the mechanism of the various antiplatelets sometimes comes up in exam questions. We should be aware that clopidogrel is an inactive prodrug and it requires activation and oxidation by a hepatic enzyme in the cytochrome P450 system which generates an active metabolite. Around 85% of the prodrug gets hydrolyzed into an inactive form and 15% of it remains to be transformed to an active metabolite. The active metabolite 
selectively and irreversibly inactivates the platelet P2Y12 receptor and this inhibits the ADP-induced aggregation of platelets. The principal randomized controlled trial for clopidogrel is the CURE trial which was performed in 2001. The results were published in 2001. It randomized patients to aspirin uh, on its own or aspirin and clopidogrel in patients with unstable angina or NSTEMI and it showed that the dual antiplatelet group had significantly lower mortality which was mainly driven by fewer MIs. However the caveat that was identified here was that there was relatively frequent treatment failure with a proportion of patients getting stent thrombosis in the order of 2% and recurrent ischemia in the first year uh, which is in the order of around 10%. Essentially there's substantial inter-individual variability in the response to clopidogrel. Some of us lack the ability to metabolize the inactive prodrug to its active form. So more recently uh, drugs such as prasigrel uh, which is given with a 60 milligram loading dose and thereafter a 10 milligram per day maintenance dose uh, is has been investigated. Now Prasigrel is also a prodrug. Um, it irreversibly blocks the same receptor, the P2Y12 receptor, but it has a faster onset and a greater effect, and more predictable pharmacodynamics. The principal randomized controlled trial for Prasigrel was the Triton TIMI38. It compared the use of prasigrel to clopidogrel directly. There were reduced MI rates, but at the expense of higher bleeding events. The overall benefit of prasigrel is negated in patients with previous stroke and TIA, and in the over 75s with very low body weights, less than 60 kilograms. Okay, the next agent is Tacagrelor, and uh, this is the one that's most widely adopted in the UK for ACS patients now. Now, as opposed to the other ones that we've mentioned, Prasigrel and Clopidogrel, this is a reversible inhibitor, P2Y12, and it also has additional effects on another platelet pathway, the ENT1 transporter. It has similar pharmacodynamics to Prasigrel, and one of the advantages is it doesn't require hepatic activation. The principal drug trial was the PLATO trial. And this compared the use of ticagrelor to clopidogrel. There was a significant reduction in cardiovascular death in the ticagrelor group. There were, however, increased rates of minor and non-bypass graft-related major bleeding events in the ticagrelor group. As such, it is still reasonable to use clopidogrel preferentially over ticagrelor in patients who were worried about significant bleeding events. The other agent that we should be aware of amongst the antiplatelets is cangrelor. Cangrelor is given intravenously. It's an ATP analogue that binds irreversibly to the same receptor, the P2Y12. It has a short half-life of less than 10 minutes. It's given as a 30 microgram per kilogram bolus and thereafter in an infusion, typically at 4 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Now the three main trials where its efficacy has been identified is the Champion PCI, which is where Kangrelor was given with clopidogrel immediately prior to the PCI, Champion Platform, where clopidogrel was given after the PCI, 
and Champion Phoenix, which was a combination of clopidogrel administration strategies. And overall, a meta-analysis of these three randomized controlled trials showed that periprocedural death, MI, revascularization rates, and stent thrombosis rates were markedly reduced at the expense of an increased rate of major and minor bleeding. So Kangrelor is used in addition to other antiplatelet therapies as a bridging therapy, particularly useful when patients come in and, and they can't swallow tablets for whatever reason. This might be post-cardiac arrest, for example. An area that causes a, a great deal of confusion on the ward uh, when these patients recover is what is the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy? I think a basic rule is that generally if a patient has had an acute coronary syndrome, one year of dual antiplatelet therapy is recommended. And this arbitrary cutoff of one year is based on the CURE trial, which we've already talked about, which was to do with clopidogrel use in addition to aspirin. The CREDO trial in 2003 enrolled patients with stable coronary artery disease and low-risk NSTEMI patients who underwent PCI. They observed also that 12 months of clopidogrel and aspirin compared with patients who had only one month of dual antiplatelet therapy went on to have a decreased risk of cardiovascular events and death. The overall optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy is likely to be individualized in the future. And this was addressed in the ESC focused update in August 2017. What it recommended was there's a default dual antiplatelet duration in ACS of 12 months. There may be some benefit in extending this regime in selected high-risk patients. And this recommendation comes from a couple of trials, which I'll go through very briefly now. One is the DAPT trial, DAPT trial. It showed conflicting evidence overall, but 18 months of extra clopidogrel in addition to aspirin, showed that there was a decreased instant thrombosis rate and decreased cardiovascular death rate. However, this came at the expense of an increase in all-cause mortality, including that from cancer. Now, the mechanism of how this works is completely unclear. Another trial, Pegasus Timmy 54. So it has slightly confusing methodology, and it's hard to extrapolate based on the real um, clinical situation. Now, in Pegasus Timmy 54, they used high-risk patients, and they took patients one to three years after their index presentation of MI. They then put these patients back onto Cagrelor, so they'd completed a year of dual antiplatelet therapy. It had a period where they were just on a single antiplatelet aspirin, and these patients were then put back onto Cagrelor for a period of time with a mean follow-up of 33 months. In these patients, there was reduced cardiovascular mortality, but not all-cause mortality in the dual treatment group. Again, why should there be a difference in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality? Now, um, the second point that was raised in the ESC-focused update was that Six months of dual antiplatelet therapy is actually a reasonable treatment in acute coronary syndrome if the patient is judged to have a high bleeding risk. 
The third point is in stable coronary artery disease. So outside of the ACS patients, the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy following an angioplasty procedure should be one to six months, and the number between one to six should be individualized to the individual patient based on an assessment of bleeding risk and ischemia risk. Now another area which causes a great deal of consternation is the use of triple therapy. So there are obviously a lot of patients who have ACS and also have elective angioplasty procedures who are already on therapeutic anticoagulation, for example, for atrial fibrillation. How should we manage patients in this situation? One trial was the WOEST trial, W-O-E-S-T, and it showed that oral anticoagulant therapy and clopidogrel was better than triple therapy in terms of less bleeding events. In the ISAR triple, I-S-A-R triple study, there was no difference between six weeks of triple therapy compared to six months of triple therapy with an oral anticoagulant and aspirin and clopidogrel in terms of ongoing thrombotic events. Finally, uh, the third study in this area, which is cited in the update, is the Pioneer AF study. So this compared the use of low-dose rivaroxaban with dual antiplatelet therapy or rivaroxaban with just clopidogrel. Both of these groups gave lower bleeding rates than the use of warfarin with dual antiplatelet therapy, and there was no significant difference in thrombotic events between all three groups. Overall, what can we take away from these three studies? Again, we can individualize the treatment for patients with an indication for oral anticoagulation, but there is no real evidence base for continuing triple therapy in patients beyond six months at the maximum. And it may be very reasonable just to give six weeks of triple therapy and then to continue just the oral anticoagulant and a single antiplatelet drug. There is evidence that rivaroxaban may actually give lower bleeding rates than warfarin when used in this setting. Okay, in the next section we'll talk about GP2B3A inhibitors. Now, uh, in initial studies going back 10 years, there was a trend towards using these routinely in ACS. But a lot of the trials for these group of drugs was in the uh, older setting where we didn't have access to drugs like prasugrel or ticagrelor. And nowadays the recommendation is that their use is limited only to bailout situations during the PCI. So for example, if there are thrombotic complications or we are unable to revascularize after uh, an attempt at angioplasty. Now the use of GP2B3A inhibitors was always associated with an increase in major bleeding complications. Examples that we'll be aware of are tyrofiban, other ones will be abciximab or eptifibidide. Okay, what anticoagulants uh, should we use in ACS? Unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin, there's an overwhelming favour for fondaparinux, actually. So fondaparinux, as we know, is an antithrombin inhibitor. It's given once daily. It's subcutaneous. It doesn't require any monitoring, for example, of factor 10A, like we might need to with these standard heparins. 
There's also, additionally, no risk of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It is, however, contraindicated if the patient has an EGFR of less than 20. The major trial uh, which demonstrated its benefit was the OASIS-5 trial, where the use of Fondaparinux was associated with half the rate of major bleeding when compared to enoxapar, low molecular weight heparin. The next drug that we should be aware of in the anticoagulant class is bivalirudin. Now, this is also a direct thrombin inhibitor. It has an interesting history. Uh, overall, the effect of bivalirudin was established in trials like Horizons AMI, which showed that it had a lower bleeding rate than unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. Also, other trials such as Acuity. Now, this was during a period where there was a standard use of the GP2B3A inhibitors, and often bivalirudin was co-administered uh, with heparin. As such, comparing bivalirudin with the use of heparin demonstrated that there were lower bleeding risks, but this was only because we used drugs like clarifiban and abcipsumab a lot more. Also, PCI technique such as stent type and the use of radial access is now more commonly used. Therefore, the application of bivalirudin and the application of the old studies is uh, less appropriate these days. Pragmatically, we only use it now in situations where heparin is ineffective, so heparin resistance, or there is documented heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. All right, we'll call it a day there uh, for today's session. Join us next time uh, where we'll talk specifically about revascularization, the different types of stents that we might use, what are the differences, why are they important. And thank you for listening to another HeartPod, cardiology podcast for trainees. Thank you.